even when we're forming our three-year roadmap strategies, once we've done the assessment, we have the recommendations, there's a strategy as far as communicating and getting buy-in, not only from the leaders, but also the general employees and having feedback loops. So even those people that feel negative about DEI feel like they're being heard. So at least you're engaging them somehow and you understand how there's opportunities to shift their mindset. So I just think a lot of companies want to jump in their journey and say, okay, we're just going to do all these things. We're not going to level set in the beginning. We're not going to tell our employees why we're doing it. Um, we're not going to have any metrics to track these changes. And then that's when it just becomes a circular process of like, okay, we didn't complete this this year or it was short-lived back to the starting point. So I just feel like structure is so important to make sure that your DI program is a progression rather than like this circular confusing process. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical insights shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson the world's first DEI operating system. Comment, like, and subscribe on all platforms. Let's get back to the episode. All right. Well, Lauren, I know you as an incredibly dynamic and amazing DEI leader and change maker. Um, But for those that don't know you yet, could you let our listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. So my name is Lauren DK. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, And I'm based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I've been in the DEI field for about three years now. I have a background in finance and accounting. Um, And for the past three years, I've really been working in a consultant capacity. So as a third party, I go into organizations and help them build um, a DEI strategy. Um, What it typically looks like is first assessing the culture through collecting qualitative and quantitative data. So we'll submit, circulate surveys, facilitate focus groups, look at company materials, to look at policies, all of that. And then we'll make a recommendation of opportunities to make the culture more inclusive and equitable. Um, we also, I also do facilitations on various subjects and topics within the, within the DEI field. Um, and then also just helping with um, strategy for ERGs, um, inclusion councils and general leadership. That sounds amazing. Um, And, you know, from transitioning to DEI um, after three years of work, that sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Um, So how how has that transition been? So, yeah, so I will say it was pretty kismet how it all happened. Um, So basically, as I said, I was working in finance. I was working as an asset manager for um, a real estate investment company. And on Juneteenth of 2020, I was laid off. And I was like in the process of um, signing a contract to purchase a home. So that had to go through because I didn't have, you know, any pay history and they're like, yeah, we can't close on this house with you. It was just a nightmare. But anyway, as part of my severance package, I negotiated two extra months of severance. And then also for them, instead of using their recruiting um, source that they were going to offer to pay for a soul searching career course that specialized um, in strategy for black women. So they approved all of that. And I kind of used the fact that they laid off a black woman on Juneteenth as my leverage. Um, And I was able to take that soul searching career course. And because I literally didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was not passionate about finance. I was just sticking there for the money. But I wanted to make an intentional step forward to fulfill my passions. Um, And so truthfully, you know, I had been part of ERGs at previous companies um, and different diversity networks. But I never really knew that you could make 
a career out of DEI. And that's really sad because I know it's been around since the 80s and 90s, but I didn't know that you could work full time as that. So someone that was coaching in the course had an HR background and she had friends in the DEI space. She's like, this seems like something you might be interested in. And then we went through a lot of exercises to make sure that truly was my passion. Um, and then, so I decided I was going to pursue DEI. And the first step, um, I got advice from someone in the field and they were like, make sure you post to LinkedIn every single day. And so I started doing that and I was starting to build networks. Um, during the same time, I was applying for jobs and I was getting denied left and right because I didn't have enough experience or they wanted, um, a master's degree or an MBA and I was just getting really defeated. Um, and so I made a post and this was in month five. So the last month of my severance pay, <laughs> um, just talking about being defeated in the field and just not losing hope. And for whatever reason, it went viral and literally had like 20 plus people in my LinkedIn DMs offering to work with me or offering an interview. And that's how I got my first role. It was someone that said, hey, I liked your post. I like your background. Can you come work for me? I'll create this position for you. And it was in the fifth month of my severance. So that's why I say it was kismet. It kind of, it was an exhausting process, but it literally couldn't have worked out better. Right. And you know, for me in the spirit of law, the law of attraction or even manifestation, it seems mm -hmm. like you really uh, attracted that moment to, um, to your Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting because part of the course was visualization every single morning. I had a, well, I had to write 10 brags about myself, 10 things I was grateful for, and then spend two minutes visualizing the future I wanted. And like, I'm convinced, like I should do that for everything. So I'm convinced that that's how it came true. So it is interesting. That is amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of um, DEI professionals have a period where they're like, okay, what exactly do I want to do? Um, because, you know, with DEI, you can go in so many di uh, different directions. Yeah. Um, and so right now, when it comes to your specialty, what do you feel like it is right now? I think that my specialty is really in the assessment process. Um, I think because I have that analytical background, sorting through the data in an organized way is something that I'm really good at. But also I just feel like I'm a very, just in general in life, I'm a very like observant person. I'll be like, did you notice in the, that person just had this different energy in the room? Like I just noticed, pick up on those things. So on assessing, you know, opportunities, I think I'm really good at that. Um, also just, ensuring there's a good structure and a strong why behind the program is um, probably my my sweetest point. I'm, you know, an introvert. So the facilitations, I can turn it on, but I don't, I can't say that I enjoy the before, like I enjoy giving them, but the before and after, you know, I get exhausted and I get nervous. So um, those aren't as enjoyable for me, but I really just like, and maybe it comes from being an accountant. I like just getting my hands dirty and doing behind the scenes work. Mm. That's a lot, yeah. And I know that yeah. um, a lot of, um, I've, I've heard this in athletics where people will just have incredible anxiety and mm -hmm. then go out and just crush it. So yes. <laughs> like, um, I think Wilt Chamberlain, I think he would have anxiety and I think he would score like 70 points in a game or something. Oh my um, gosh. So I feel like <laughs> you're, you're, you're probably a person that thrives in that environment. Yeah. Um, I actually was <laughs> an athlete in college. I ran track mm -hmm. and yeah, I would get like nervous. I would, all I would do is sleep before my meet, even like at the meet, I would just be sleeping. So I'm, if I'm awake, I'm going to be so nervous. I can't like function. <laughs> and then I would go out there and run amazing. But yeah, anxiety definitely 
I, I like to use it for good, but it's not fun to go through. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I, I totally hear you. Um, and I know that you've been kind of weaving through some amazing transitions in your life. Um, one being going from the New York and New Jersey area to the Atlanta, Georgia area, which could be a, a culture shift. Um, how mm -hmm. different is that work culture in Atlanta from uh, New York and New Jersey? Yeah. So I came here in 2017 and I only worked in an office when I was in finance. Like since I've been in DEI, it's only been virtual settings and my companies have been based out of South Carolina and Florida. So it's hard to comment on the DEI difference in the culture, but as far as like working in finance, it's definitely more, um, you know, in New Jersey, New York, it felt more hierarchical and like more intimidation whereas when i came to atlanta i felt like we the whole team including our leaders and ceo would go to like lunch together maybe it had to do with the company size too but it just seemed more um accessible and inclusive even though it wasn't as diverse like visually right but it just felt more laid back and inclusive for sure it's yeah. awesome um yeah. and i know you know when people are transitioning or um when they're in the process of searching for roles in DEI, some people might be unsure about the DEI space in general, but mm -hmm. um, during that period of reflection that you had, what made you realize that DEI was the right path for you? I think for me, it was because, well, first of all, my background, being a black woman in corporate America and finance specifically, and real estate finance specifically, I was the only, black woman carrying my roles and often the only woman in the room. And so I deeply understand what it feels like to be psychologically unsafe and feeling like people can't relate to you and just generally feeling othered. Um, and it's something that's always been like a cloud over my head when I was in that space and figuring out like, how can this change? So the passion to make the workplaces better for other historically marginalized employees is something um, that really is important important to me because of my own experience with it. Um, and I think also I knew that I wanted to pursue it because I had to take over 50% pay cut for my first DI role because I had no experience. And I literally had to like shift around all my finances, consider like, you know, if I could even afford <laughs> the house I was living in. So I knew that was also a sign that I was passionate about it because I could have just easily went back to finance and made the same money and went through the motions again. But I really knew that I wanted to pursue DI. Yeah, I know some people wouldn't be ready to um, make that kind of sacrifice. So um, oh, it's pretty cool that yeah. you made that. Um, and I know that you are an analytics fanatic. Um, that probably has something <laughs> to do with your <laughs> accounting background. Um, but what's your philosophy on why metrics are so important, especially in DEI? Yeah. Um, well, first, I think without metrics, it can't really guide the strategy forward. So, you know, a lot of companies will just, you know, say, oh, we're going to do a panel every month or we're going to just start ERG aimlessly without knowing why we need an ERG. So when you collect that qualitative and quantitative data, it helps you form your strong why and really your, I hate using the word business case, right? Because it's a moral imperative, but formulating that business case for people that are looking for one. So when you have the data from employees, they're gonna tell you the most about how to improve your culture and what opportunities exist. So, um, you know, that's why it's important, especially 
when you're setting your goals, always have it associated what's the impact you hope to make and then what's the metric metric you're gonna use to measure it because it also helps you keep keep yourself honest and accountable um, to those goals that you have. Nice, and, and are there any specific tools that you typically use um, when it comes to helping you analyze uh, systems within companies? Yeah, so I've used different survey tools. Um, so I've used Alchemer, Qualtrics, where I am now we use SurveyMonkey, but I think we're trying to get away from that just because it's, there. there's some more modern tools out there. But um, I think, I mean, it, for me, it's a pretty simplistic process. When I get the survey, we have the demographics. So I usually cut all the questions by demographics to see, you know, the intersections of experience um, and roles. And it's not just race, right? It's in roles, ability, um, gender, you know, the sky's on. I think we have 17 different demographic questions. Um, so I use that. I use Excel to kind of disaggregate the information and figure out um, what I want to use as supporting verbatims in the executive summary or assessment report that we have. But also like for me, I like to just do like a SWOT analysis. And I, you know, I never share the SWOT analysis with the client because sometimes the words threats and weaknesses are kind of like negative. But for me, it just helps map out everything and understand um, how to formulate those recommendations. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and Matheson, we also have uh, a tool that allows people to benchmark their um, their DEI processes. Um, but when we talk about structure, and I know that you're, you also like and appreciate um, structure, order. <laughs> so when we talk about structure, what's the most important aspect of um, a DEI system that has um, structure to it? That's a good question. And I think, I feel like there's so many different nuances and levels to it. So for example, if you're going to have an inclusion council or a DEI council, whatever you want to call it, it's important to have a charter. And some people only think of charters in the form um, relating to ERGs, but even that council should have a charter so, ch charter, so you understand standard operating procedures, roles and responsibilities, the meeting cadence, all of that, because when you don't have that from the beginning, it becomes like every meeting is starting to discuss, you know, when should we have the meeting next or right. who's going to do what? And it's just like wasting time when you could have just set that framework from the beginning and then it just guides your work forward. Um, and the same idea with the strata, even when we're forming our three-year roadmap strategies, once we've done the assessment, we have the recommendations. There's a strategy as far as communicating and getting buy-in, not only from the leaders, but also the general employees and having feedback loops. So even those people that feel negative about DEI feel like they're being heard. So at least you're engaging them somehow and you understand how there's opportunities to shift their mindset. So I just think a lot of companies wanna jump in their journey and say, okay, we're just gonna do all these things. We're not gonna level set in the beginning. We're not gonna tell our employees why we're doing it. Um, we're not gonna have any metrics to track these changes. And then that's when it just becomes a circular process of like, okay, we didn't complete this this year or it was short-lived back to the starting point. So I just feel like structure is so important to make sure that your DI program is a progression rather than like this circular confusing process. Right, yeah, and I think we see it a lot with ERGs. I think a lot of ERGs do it very well, um, but mm -hmm. sometimes um, we get kind of taxed with the burden of making sure that everybody feels included or, or that they belong. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, 
at the first, I think the first or second ERG meeting or the event is probably very great, very well attended. Um, mm-hmm. And then sometimes it kind of fizzles out <laughs> toward the yes. end of the year. Um, in terms of sustainability, how do we make sure that we keep the same amount of engage- engagement across the, the entire year? Yeah, well, I think it's an important idea to make sure there's always an agenda and ask for people's input into it and also level set on what everyone's hoping to get out of the ERG. So you're socializing that and ensuring you're incorporating that into the agenda. So I think um, a lot of ERGs, because they're wrongly set up, because companies say, okay, we're gonna form ERGs to solve RDI issues. When it's like, no, you're supposed to leverage their experiences and ask them for advice, but the goals are supposed to be at the operational high level overarching corporate strategy, right? So <clears throat> these people in the ERGs meet and they just feel so much pressure to form these goals and initiatives instead of spending time to formulate belonging and socialize different articles or things that they're going through in the workplace, right? Or um, really thinking about their own experience and how it can relate to the talent process and make suggestions to leadership. So. I think that's part of it. I think also um, rewarding and recognizing those members. So, you know, having a quarterly, you know, meeting where maybe you pay for lunch and then you're like bringing up successes and wins or just advertising it um, to the company in a newsletter, making sure people are recognized for their success. Um, And then also making sure that everyone has a role You know, like sometimes you just go to meetings and there's only one or two people talking and then there's no takeaways. So making sure that everyone has an assignment. um, I think those are some best practices or say promising practices um, to incorporate. Promising practices, I like that. Yeah, I saw that recently on LinkedIn. So like, I guess because perfection is like a tenet of white supremacy, they were saying that best is just too definite and you know it, it kind of encourages perfectionism so you should say promising that is awesome um and i know that you mentioned linkedin and, and posting every day i feel like when you um so leading up to you um posting that one main post that led to your transition mm-hmm. um it seemed like you had a lot of momentum going into that and you kind of primed yourself for that opportunity so that by the time you had the vulnerable post everybody was already you know kind of um locked into you and what you were doing um that's what it sounds like to me but do you think that that's what that was or you know can anybody just post once on linkedin i know people are gonna get opportunities what do you think i think it really was um well i i think now it's posting is a lot more not that people weren't posting in 2020 it just seems like it's a saturation of posts every day i'm just like whoa what do i look at some things are too calm right but um what's interesting is my post had nothing to do with the it was more about my struggle and my vulnerability in the job search process so i think maybe that's just a testament to the power of being vulnerable really because i had probably about 50 to 60 posts on di related things beforehand that got little traction but it was when i was vulnerable that's when people felt connected and empathized with me and wanted to help me um so not that people should have a pity party right but just understanding that sharing you know your struggles as much as you're willing to share sometimes you know, can inspire, not only inspire people, but make people want to help you. 
Right, because we all want the shiny LinkedIn posts where we're always mm-hmm. looking great and amazing. But um, I think there's something about authenticity and vulnerability that it's like there's nothing like it, in, especially yes. in the professional realm, right? Absolutely. Well, I know that we are at, almost uh, at the end here, Lauren, but um, uh, for people that want to get in contact with you, how should they do that? Yes, so they can um, they can connect to me on LinkedIn. So I'm sure you're going to have my name on here, but I think I'm under yeah. Lauren D because I don't have my full last name showing for people who aren't friends with me, but I work at Hummingbird Humanity, so they can find me that way. Um, you can also contact me at Lauren at Hummingbird Humanity dot com and i'd be happy to help out or connect with anyone um that would like for the last question lauren if there was one action you would urge our dei leaders to take after listening to your episode um what action would that be that is interesting so i would say um to brush up on emotional iq or eq because in our work, it's so easy to get frustrated with people that aren't as mature on the DI scale, so to say, as us. And understanding the way people think and what influences them and how to show empathy is really important as part of changing minds. And it sometimes may feel like you have to fold or bend for people that aren't at a place that's acceptable to you. But the truth of the matter is everyone has a starting point and most people are good people and are willing to change. You just have to understand how to influence them. And there's a lot of resources and books on emotional EQ that I've been catching up on and brushing on. It gives you a perspective on how to just approach and influence differently. So that's what I would suggest. That is amazing advice, Lauren. Um, thank you for that. Lauren DK, yeah. we couldn't have ended any better than that. Um, I really appreciate you for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. This was awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Did you like this? Subscribe to the Voices of Inclusion podcast to hear secrets from incredible DEI professionals. Don't forget to go to matheson.io to connect with us so we can help you develop your DEI strategy no matter where you are on your journey. We'll catch you on the next episode. Um, If you think about best practices, essentially there are none. Right? It's the best practice for your organization. Um, so I always try to help these leaders really figure out well, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? Right? What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve with the, you know, the appetite for the work that you have maybe with amongst your leaders? Um, for those who are looking to really help you in building a strong, inclusive uh, you know, workforce too as well. Um, how can we make this specific to you and tailored to you too as well so you're not comparing yourselves uh, to maybe what others are doing and that's stopping you from at least starting to take action too as well. Um, so I definitely understand why people uh, and why leaders you know, ask that question. Um, maybe to even see if they're even capable enough to start taking action. Uh, But I also think it's a part of my duty too as well to really help architect a way for leaders to take action no matter where they show up to this work, 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 work.